appreciation of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ in the gospel. As we talk about submission this week, it's important, it's in a box just for you, that we don't ever start the discussion of marriage at Ephesians 5.22. Don't ever do that again. Okay, let's make a promise. Well, not a biblical promise where you put your hand under the person's thigh next to you. We're going to keep it PG. But, you know, let's make a covenant with one another. We'll never do that again. When we do that, you put the woman in bondage. You call her to moralism and divorce her from the only means by which she can fulfill her obligations. We learned last week to go back to at least Ephesians 5.18, where we're told, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. You might remember the reason we go back to verse 18 is because there's not actually a verb in Ephesians 5.22. It just simply says in the original Greek, and wives to the husbands, that's it. And so we go back and we go back and learning how to study the Bible is we'll go back to Ephesians chapter four, verse one, and you might go there in your Bible right now. Just flip there, page back or so. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter one, I'm, I'm sorry, chapter four, verse one has been called a hinge verse. Okay. Just imagine a hinge there in the middle of the book in Ephesians chapter four, verse one where Paul basically goes from saying all the incredible things that Jesus has done for us, and now it hinges to, so let's respond to that in the way we behave towards others. Okay, so chapters 1 through 3 are all the incredible things that God's done for us. We're going to actually look at some of those here right now. It's worth taking the time to get into some text here. And so go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 where we see the high and holy calling of a Christian. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So you might just make a little mark in your Bible, or make a little note that uh, all the blessings of God towards us in the next couple verses we're going to be reading. So he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the rich of his, of his grace. So already we've got he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He's chose us in verse 4. He's predestined us to adoption in verse 5. He's made accepted in the beloved at the end of verse 6. We have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness. That's just verses 3 through 7. Are you getting already? Look at what he's done for us. Now look in verse 11. In him also we've obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Jump to verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. So this is an unbelievable list of blessings that are given to us as Christian. Note this. And I think it is in your notes, actually. 
Not one word asks or tells or commands us to do something. It's just an expression of what God has done for us in the gospel. Look in chapter 2 of Ephesians. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in what you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. So one man once said that this is our biography. Okay, this is our story of redemption. We were once dead in trespasses and sins, but God, who's rich in mercy, pursued us with his grace and has saved us by his grace. Look in verse 11 there. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Look at verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Jump down to verse 22. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So, so far, he has not asked one thing of us. These are just the riches of his blessing that come from knowing him and receiving his grace. In fact, if there's anything that we've done in the story so far, we've been the guys that have just messed it all up and been at war with God. Jump to Ephesians 3.14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family of heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through the Spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then in chapter 3 verses 20 and 21, Paul prays that God would be glorified within the church. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So all of this, first three chapters of the book, is just what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. So a little bit of uh, Bible study, uh, hermeneutics, which is the art of interpreting the Bible, okay? Something that we see in our hermeneutics is what is called the redemptive indicative. It's there in your notes. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, the first half of the book, are what is called the redemptive indicative. Okay? Think of an indicator. You know, I think over in England, they call your blinker on your car your indicator, right? Because it's just like, bing, bing. It's indicating that you're going to turn left or you're going to turn right. 
And chapters 1 through 3 are just this flashing light indicating that God loves you and sent his son to bring you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, okay? So it's the redemptive indicative. It's the statement of fact of what God has done for you in the good news of the gospel. Then in chapter 4, verse 1, you've got this hinge verse, and it goes from verse 1 through verse 6, and he turns a corner, and he's going to state what is then called the moral imperatives, okay? Moral imperatives. Now, whenever you have ever heard the word imperative, you know, it's usually in a state of emergency or something like that. It is imperative that you wear a mask, you know, or it is imperative that you social distance. It means you've got to do this, okay? And some of us have did that because the reasons haven't really been there, right? Well, from chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, we're going to begin this list of imperatives that it's necessary that you behave a certain way, but we've been shown in chapters 1 through 3 why we would do that. Actually, why and how we would do that, okay? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling of which you were called. Now, there's that word, therefore, chapter 4, verse 1. I don't know if you've learned much at Calvary Chapel, but whenever you see a therefore, you've got to ask, what's it there for, right? Okay? It causes you to look back to everything that was said before that. And so Paul says, I, Paul, therefore, in light of all that God has done for us through Jesus Christ, I'm now going to beg you to live a life that's worthy of all this awesome richness that God has given us. And what Paul is going to say is, let there be unity between what God has done for you and what you are called to do. Now, why would we bother with this? Come on, Rory, just give us some practical stuff to do as a husband and wife, like, should I buy her purple flowers or red flowers, you know? Should we get a hotel and band, or should we go to Aruba, or this, that, and the other, you know? And it's like, those are all good, but you got to know why you should even do those things, and the purpose behind doing those things, and how to do those things, right? we got to be led by the Spirit and informed by the Spirit. But ultimately, we are bothering with this, because this is the Christian life. This is the gospel-centered life. This is the grace life. The gospel is not do this and God will bless you. It is God has blessed you, now do this. And I think that is in your notes somewhere, but I've, I've got it written doubly. So um, I think it's there halfway through verse 2. Gospel living is not do and God will bless you. It's God has blessed you, now do do it because God has blessed you. This is important because Ephesians chapter 5 about wives submit and husbands love your wives. And chapter 6 about children obey your parents and going on towards uh, employers. Take good care of your employees and employees obey your employers. All right, That's all a bunch of how do we live with one another. Chapter 5 and following is not an independent piece. 
Paul didn't say, you guys have been good little kids and you've listened to my spiel for the last three chapters or four chapters about the gospel and a whole bunch of doctrine and theology. And so now, just to give your brain a little bit of break, let's talk about marriage and what you need to do, wives, and what you need to do, husbands, and that'll kind of liven the mood a little bit. No, there's reasoning behind the structure, okay? That would miss the point altogether. This hinge verse of chapter 4, verse 1, going on to the uh, imperatives is a vital piece of this expositional letter, this letter that builds off of the previous verses. And so we are focusing on the family, but it's in light of the gospel, in response of the gospel, motivated by the grace of the gospel that's evident in the gospel, okay? And this structure of Ephesians chapter 5 makes this evident, okay? Paul's comments to husbands and wives bears a distinct literary formula in three different parts. In part one, notice verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands. Okay? Wives, submit to your husbands. Now, to the husbands, he says, look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. That's part one. We're going to liken it to an Oreo cookie. Okay? So one of the cookies is... This just, wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands, just love your wives, okay? The top cookie part, Paul is going to reiterate this command. It's in verse 24. So also, wives should submit to their husbands. And in verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives. But sandwiched between part one and three, that good white frosting in an Oreo cookie is the model to copy, which is Christ Jesus, his romance of the church. Okay, so wives do this, wives do this. Husbands do this, husbands do this. And in between, look at Jesus and how he has romanced the church in this way. Let's look at that frosting goodness. Okay, verse 24 and 25. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So, this is what makes the whole thing blatantly and patently Christian. The moral indicatives, which are the observed facts are tied to these imperatives. The, the change that needs to happen in a listener's behavior. So what we are to do for one another as husband and wife is tied directly to what Jesus has already done for us in the gospel. Again, and now is where I'm at in, my, in your notes there. Gospel living is not do and God will bless you. But it's God has blessed you, now do. And so you read your New Testament, especially when Paul is writing, every moral or ethical topic is an opportunity to preach Christ. Has an evangelical ring about it. And so all of our preaching here at this church, all of our counseling here at this church, the discipline that we do as a church would be less than Christian if we're not doing it with this emphasis. Some try to dismiss the topic of our evening 
which is a topic of submission, they tried to dismiss it due to, first of all, context. They'll say, we were never supposed to have slaves, so wives were never to be submissive either. Now, this is a separate subject. This is not to be compared with God's role for men and women. God is the one that created the institution of marriage. Critics tried to dismiss submission due to culture, secondly. They would say, back then, women were held down, so that passage is not applicable today. People tried to bring their spectacles and say, Paul is trying to diminish women. Paul is out of step with culture. And we would actually say, it's true that Paul was out of step with our culture, but he's also out of step with the culture of his own day. And what Paul writes here, he's actually elevating women in Ephesians chapter 5 in the role that he gives her, which is the created role, and he's diminishing men. You guys got to understand this was revolutionary for Paul in his time. Okay? Let's look at the culture that Paul wrote this in. In Jewish law, a woman was like a piece of property, like his house or like his flock or like his land. He could divorce her at any time for any reason he chose. She didn't have the same opportunity. It was almost impossible for a wife to initiate divorce unless he'd got leprosy or he died or there was a gross immorality. In the Greek culture that Paul would be writing to, many times men would live alone with other women. I'm sorry, women would live alone with other women, eat meals alone, and only see the men when he calls for her, and then she would be put back. He could enter into as many relationships outside of marriage that he wanted without consequences. Demosthenes says, we have courtesans for the sake of pleasure, we have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation, and we have wives for the purpose of legitimate children and having faithful guardians over our household affairs. Rome was no better. Jerome writes one woman writes of one woman marrying her 23rd husband and he was on his 21st wife. Women didn't want to have children because it ruined her appearance. Sound familiar? Some wanted to do everything that men did. Sounds familiar? So they developed in that day women wrestlers, women sword throwers, and women everything else. Juvenile, a Roman historian, writes that Women began to lord it over their husbands, and before long, they'd vacate the home and flip from one marriage to another, wearing out their bridal veils. And so the first century when Paul wrote was a time when, not unlike our own, women were asserting their rights and climbing to positions of social prominence. The injunction to subordinate themselves to their husband would have sounded just as reactionary to their ears then as it does to many of our ears now. The culture that Paul sent his letter to was not a culture that would have received it well. Paul would be elevating the women and providing for her a new way of life that was never known in the Greek and Roman culture. But it's the same man who wrote on other uh, occasions campaigning on behalf of women's rights and coining the revolutionary slogan from Galatians 3.28 that there's no male, no female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you want to be a rebel, tell people, 
I think it's right to submit to my husband. It's not a revolutionary thing to say, I won't submit if you want to start a revolution. Tell them you'll do it the biblical way. Tell them you'll do it in the Song of Solomon way where submission and authority are perfectly interwoven when it says, I am my beloved and he is mine. The word submission comes from the Greek word, and it's in your notes there, hupotasso, hupotasso. And it means to line up under, to place in order. To line up under or to place in order. The expression was originally used as a military term for con- in context of conscripts who would line up under their commanding officer. The most accurate English translation would probably be the term to subordinate, to subordinate. According to Paul, the most helpful piece of wisdom he can offer to wives is to subordinate themselves to their husband. A wonderful definition of submission in your notes. Submission on the part of a Christian wife is defined as a voluntary yielding to the love of her husband. A voluntary yielding to the love of her husband. Steve Carr writes it well. Finding the opposite meaning of submission can make it clearer as to why God wants us to be this way. Look at the antonyms. Defiant, mutinous, rebellious. These are not attributes that are compatible with a healthy marriage. The unwillingness to subordinate yourselves is what drives couples apart. Unselfish giving will always draw you together. Art Azertius said that God's design for marriage is like a choreographed dance of submission to love. Think of that. You know, you kind of into like choreographed dances nowadays on So You Think You Can Dance and all that kind of stuff or cheerleading moves or whatever, or, you know. And it's just awesome when everybody's jiving together, right? And I appreciate that, that God has designed marriage to be a choreographed, planned out dance where there's a a submissive part to a loving part. It's not coursed or forced, but voluntary. It's voluntary because, first of all, we notice how the verse begins. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, not husbands, but wives. This is what grammarians say is the case of direct address. Direct address. It's as if you can dismiss all the men and all the children from the room because it's not addressed to them. So, men, you can get up and go. It's just some special time of Paul addressing the gals. Okay? It's not for husbands to use. Submit is borrowed from the previous verse. Now, when you're studying Greek, every Greek verbal idea has an active, middle, passive tense. I know that this will make your brain just like, okay, just hear me out for just a little bit, okay? And you only need to get the middle part, but just hear me out, okay? So if it were an active tense, it would be like saying, I drive to the store. I perform the action. If it were a passive tense, it would say, I was driven to the store. Okay? The action was performed on me as I went to the store. 
The middle tense says, I drive myself to the store, stressing voluntary action on the part of a free and responsible person. Okay? This middle action stresses the voluntary character on the part of a free and responsible person. So what does this mean? Why the big deal? Why the Greek lesson, Rory? It's important because the language tells us that the husband is never to use this as a club to demand or command submission from his wife. It's not a license to break her will or her spirit or to bring her down to servile subordination. It says, wives submit to your husbands, not wives be made submissive by your husbands. Husbands aren't even addressed for another few verses until verse 25. And while 40 words are used to address the wife, guess what, guys? In in next week, we'll see 115 words are used to address the husband. But the moment a husband takes it upon himself to demand submission, saying, you must submit to me, the spirit of the whole thing that Paul wrote under the uh, guise of the Holy Spirit is lost. Voluntary submission calls for total devotion. I like what Savage writes. It presents a call to wives to give to their husbands what belongs to the wives by right. You might remember this from the first week. Fully equal to their husbands, wives choose to put the needs of their husbands before their own. They are not subordinate, but with God's help, they willingly subordinate themselves. It is the volitional aspect of subordination that makes it so revolutionary. It's also what makes it so exciting. It was the willing submission of Jesus that paved the way for the power of heaven to invade what would otherwise have been the unremarkable existence of a Galilean carpenter. Submission is something that we're all called to do in various relationships within the church and within a community, with, under a government. Go back one verse to Ephesians 5.22 where we see we're to submit to one another. It's what Martin Luther dubbed God's house table. The house table. That within the table there are, there's order. Kent Hughes said this entire household teaching rides on the joyous surging tide of mutuality. We studied in God's design that God designed men and women to be equal in worth, but distinct in role and function. Equality of worth is not uh, identical role. Paul calls for an ordered equality. I believe that's in your notes. An ordered equality. A Christian wife in full equality of her husband, voluntarily yielding up her own independent rights so that she might be responsive to his love. This is never the repression of her opinion, perspective, so that she can't have her own mind or her own thoughts or perspectives or personality She, along with her husband, is a fellow image bearer of God and heirs together of the grace of life. All that being said, the husband is not to be an autocrat who in the guise of masculinity gets his way 
when an argument comes up. If you take this verse to have the philosophy that the husband wins, well, the very question in the first place is wrong. Who gets to win? It should be just the other way around. Everything is about her needs, her wants, her desires, her well-being. She always wins. I remember when I was first married, going into our marriage pastor's office, Gene Stokes. First married, so frustrated, was in an argument with Lindsay, and I went in and I shut the door and I said, Gene, I can never win. And he goes, sit down. He said, don't ever win. Don't ever win. Now, of course, this is for her best good, and her best good according to biblical goodness, all right? Not according to the philosophy of the world. This moves everything about our headship, gentlemen, to be about love, which in every moment is bound up in assuring her greatest good. It's a choreographed dance of submission to love. Now, what submission does not mean there in your notes, submission does not mean that the wife becomes a slave who never opens her mouth or gives her opinions or counsel. It's wonderful to see in Genesis 21, 8 through 12, how Sarah spoke wisdom. Or in Acts 18, 26, Aquila and Priscilla were a husband and wife team and and Priscilla would speak up and be a part of the ministry. Or in Judges 13, 21 through 23, the angel of the Lord appears to Manoah and tells him, listen to your wife. Submission does not mean that a wife is inferior to her husband. 1 Peter 3, 7 says that they are heirs together of the grace of life. Submission does not mean that a wife is to submit without limitations. As Colossians tells us, she must only submit as is fitting in the Lord. Colossians 3.18, Acts 5.28-29 tells us that there are extents to submission in every relationship that we're called to submit in. The Trinity functions this way. We see that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all equal in value and worth as deity, but there are different roles and functions within the Trinity. Jesus himself said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done to the Father. And Jesus, where we're at in our Gospel of John series, chapter 14, says that the Holy Spirit's job is to come and to testify of me. All three are God, and yet each has a distinct function and worth, uh, rather role. All right, we're going to take a break here. That was a bit of just the definition or submission defined. And then we're going to look in our next part, the motivation behind submission. So stand up, walk outside. It's probably cooler outside than it is in here. Grab yourself some treats. I see some delicious watermelons back there. And we'll be back in just a second. All right, if you want to come on in, we'll tackle part two. I should say we're starting part six. Part six where we're looking at the motivation behind submission. The captain of the ship looked into the dark night and saw faint lights in the distance. Immediately, he told his signalman to send a message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. Promptly, a return message was received. Alter your course 10 degrees north. 
The captain was angered. His command had been ignored, so he sent a second message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am the captain. Soon another message was received. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I am seaman third class Jones. Immediately the captain sent a third message, knowing that what fear it would evoke. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a battleship. Then the reply came, Alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a lighthouse. The battleship needed to learn the great act of submission. Mutual submission is the context in which verse 22 appears. It follows verse 21, submitting to one another. The starting point of the house table that Luther described Paul's emphasis of equality and distinction in, te- in terms of worth equality in terms of value equality in terms of function and role distinction there's complete submission on the part of a christian wife that's complemented by complete love on part of a christian husband Both roles are to emulate the person of Jesus. Both roles require death to self. As Kent Hughes said, the entire household teaching rides on the joyous surging tide of mutuality. Ordered equality is called for by Paul. A wise husband seeks her wisdom, her perspective, her feelings, her best interests, her desires. Remember the Trinity functions in a way of ordered equality. Alistair Begg had some, somehow, we think that equality and submission are diametrically opposed. They are not, but are bedfellows. This is a key to understanding not only the place of the wives, but the husbands as well. Remember from our previous session, submission on the part of a Christian wife is defined as the voluntary yielding to the love of her husband. He is not called to be the head. He actually is the head. He's not called to lead But he's called to love. And the emphasis of the submission of a wife to her husband takes place in the context of reciprocal submission, mutual submission. As verse 21 tells us, submission from one to another. As a starting point, this is what defines a marriage to be distinctly Christian. Two people bounded, determined, to outserve each other on behalf of one another. Nobody wins and they both win. Let me say that again. Two people who are bound and determined to outserve each other on behalf of each other. Nobody wins and they both win. Submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. And in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We don't begin by talking about the wife. 
We don't begin by talking about the husband. We begin by talking about the need to be filled with the Spirit who leads and empowers us to submit to one another in love, which leads to the roles within the home. Mutual submission, even though there's unique distinctions. Status, in your notes, and specific expressions of submission are two separate things altogether. Status speaks of the sovereign determination of God. The Christian husband, Christian wife share the same standing. But they bear distinct roles that are not interchangeable parts, although they are equal. Your submission has a motivation behind it. Submission motivated. Gals, when we speak of submission regarding to that towards your husband... There needs to be motivation or incentive or promptings to action. It speaks of to actuate or to incite or to move or propel. Something needs to get the propulsion system going so that you begin to submit towards your husband. One man confessed to his pastor, I'm so depressed that I can't get any dates. He was a 300-pound uh, man who said, I've tried to do everything to lose weight. The minister said, I think I can help. Be dressed and ready to go tomorrow at 8 a.m. The next morning, a beautiful woman in an exercise outfit knocked on the door on the man's door and said, if you can catch me, you can have me. So she took off, and he huffed and puffed after her. This routine went on every day for the next five months, And the man lost 115 pounds and felt confident that the next time they went running, he would catch the woman. That next morning, he whipped open his front door and found a 300-pound woman in a jogging suit waiting for him. The minister said to tell you that if I can catch you, I can have you. And so the things that can incite us and motivate us can be as strange as they are sinful. What's motivating you to submit to your husband? What's motivating you to submit one towards another? Submission on the part of a Christian wife is motivated by her ultimate allegiance to her Lord Jesus Christ. The million dollar question tonight is, why should a wife be submissive to her husband? Is it, number one, because this is the role society has allotted to her and we can't go against our culture? Is it because women by nature are born to be inherently submissive and by doing so, they're fulfilling their design? Is it thirdly because their husbands are stronger and clearly more intelligent and less prone to deception? Why would a Christian wife be submissive to her husband? Look at verse 22. The text says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, Lord here is not a reference to the husband as the Lord of the wife, nor that she would regard her husband in the same way she regards the Lord in an idolatrous fashion. There's an ultimate allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ that must always prevail, and there are limits to the submission, and you can say no in obedience to the Lord Jesus rather than to your husband. The submission to her husband, it's in your notes, 
is an expression of her submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how her discipleship expresses itself as she follows Jesus. Look in verse 21. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. In the fear of God is motivation for submission, men. Wives, in verse 22, as to the Lord. Check out the end of verse 25. As Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Go to the next chapter, chapter 6, verse 1. In the Lord, for this is right. Chapter 6, verse 4. In the admonition of the Lord. Jump down to verse 5. As to Christ, the end of verse 5. As to bond servants of Christ, the middle of verse 6. Middle of verse 7. As to the Lord. Okay, I know that we're missing a whole lot of the, what was the command there. I just wanted you to see in those verses that every verse has the motivational factor in there that we are doing this in worship to the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 9. Masters do the same things to them. Give it up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven. So Paul gives us the motivation for whatever role he's calling us to in our relationships with one another in society. The moment you take the gospel away from mutual submission to one another, on our part, you become a legalist. In your notes, submission is called for not because of who your husband is, but because of who Jesus Christ is. And what this does is it elevates the worth of our relationships to a higher plane. Quote, big long quote here by Tim Savage. Oh, I have a whole bunch of books for you guys that I left on my couch coming here. So next week. When applied to marriage, subordination of this kind ennobles the wife. She becomes a creative and energetic partner. She interacts thoughtfully and actively with her husband. She becomes so much more, radically more, than simply a differential partner in times of dissent. She is also more than a competitor vying for equal status. Confidence of her equality to her husband, she passionately uses that equality as a platform for revolutionary action, the sort of action which makes other revolutionaries look insipid by comparison. She throws herself into fulfilling the needs of her husband, viewing his interests as more important than her own. Revolutionary indeed. What person with even a modicum of self-respect, with even the slightest measure of egalitarian propriety, would dare to subordinate her interests to those of another? We have met just such a person, Jesus Christ, He viewed his position of equality to God as a reason to submit himself to the appalling death of crucifixion. By doing so, he put our interests ahead of his own. He regarded our needs as more important than his own. He lined up under us, not in the sense that he became inferior to us, but in the sense that he gave priority to our needs. Does this kind of self-sacrifice offend our enlightened minds? 
Does the subordination of Jesus scandalize our egalitarian sensibilities? Of course not. It is gospel good news because it is the grounds of our salvation. Through the subordination of the Son of God, we are exalted. The apostle does not refer to nature, to general standards of decency, to the law or to the fall, as though any one of these contained the grander motive of his exhortation. Only the Lord Jesus Christ is the source, standard, and motivation of a woman's subordination. So for those of you who are Christian wives, there can be no higher motivation to submission than this. It's an expression of your devotion to your submission to Him who is an example of His submission and and that He's done everything to save you. And until this is understood and one and grips your heart, all pleas for submission will fall short of being Christian, even though they're taken from the Bible and have verse references attached. To understand the full meaning of American history, apart from a right appreciation from the dates of 1492, 1776, and 1865, Those dates affect everything else, and you cannot fully appreciate or understand American history without an understanding of the significance of those dates and what happened on them. In the same way, if you approach the scripture as just a collection of loose moral principles to be extracted whenever you want and applied however you will, then you fail to interpret the Bible through the grid of its highest point of revelation, the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. Though you find yourself with a set of principles containing truth, you'll be devoid of anything Christian. The Bible is not just an inspired book of virtues. We shouldn't use it that way. If you can talk about submission in a way that would be suitable to a Mormon or a Muslim or an Orthodox Jew, then you're not talking about Christian submission. You've missed the meaning of the Bible in entirely Although perhaps you've been able to make your point uses verses and texts from the Bible, this book from cover to cover is an evangelical gospel-centered book. So Paul's not going to let us fall into that trap in the book of Ephesians. In your notes, submission on the part of a Christian wife is motivated by her ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ. It is an expression of her devotion to him in response to all that he has done for her. Consider some of these other New Testament passages. Colossians 3.18. Wives, submit to your own husbands. And he doesn't leave it there even in the book of Colossians. What's he say? As is fitting in the Lord. Not only because it's right, fitting into God's ultimate design, but also because of who the Lord is in your life. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. 
It's not because the women are older. Older doesn't mean anything. The implication and the idea is that they're mature and they're aged in the Lord. And that the women, older women, uh, mature women should be teaching the youngers to be submissive to their husbands so that the word of God wouldn't be reviled. So that the gospel could be protected from slander and accusation on the part of non-believers. Peter chimes in in 1 Peter 3, 1, studied it a little bit last week. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. And then there's this word, that, a purpose behind it. Even if some of them do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. And so by living out submission, it's a model of Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus. Even non-believing husbands could come to salvation through such behavior. Put all of this motivation together and what do you have? Wives are to voluntarily submit to the love of their husbands because four things. Number one, it's an expression of their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, because it's fitting to do so in keeping with God's creative design. Third, to adorn the gospel. I always like that word, adorning the gospel. We adorn the gospel in so many ways by loving on people, serving people, you know, by helping the poor and, and laying down our lives for one another and even laying down our lives for our countrymen. And I think of when I usually use the word adorn, you know, I think of like a Christmas tree, you know, and how I'm ornamenting a Christmas tree and I'm just making this beautiful tree look even more beautiful. And here we have the gospel and we ornament it and we adorn it. Uh, gals, in the context of tonight, when you voluntarily submit yourself to the love of your husband's. And uh, finally, as a means of influencing unsaved husbands for the sake of the gospel. And so what you could safely assume is that the contrast of this would also be true. To refuse submission to a husband's love as a Christian wife would, first of all, commit an act of defiance towards your Savior. Act as a manner that it's cross-purpose to God's design. It would subject the gospel to reproach. And it would provide a means to convince your unsaved husband that there's really nothing significant to this Christianity stuff. We have to reckon with this for the reason that some of you wives here may be more intelligent than your husbands, more talented or educated or biblically informed than your husbands. You may possess more instinctive leadership skills than your husband. So why would a Christian wife want to submit to her husband? The motivation behind it is enormous. And the most significant of all is that it comes from the realization that it's an expression of her obedience to her Savior. I like what Artaxerdia said. The fact of the matter is one of the most wonderful and touching scenes to observe is to observe a woman of infinitely greater gifts Responding humbly to the love of her clearly inferior husband. Watch us every Sunday. You'll see it. Just cruise around and hang out with us, right? And to do so in a way that isn't condescending, bitter, or manipulative. This is so profoundly Christian. Reflective of the condescending of the life of Jesus who assumed the role of the submissive one. Submission in its most beautiful way is found in Jesus. Whenever a multi-talented woman imitates her Savior by responding and submitting to her exceedingly average husband, 
we find ourselves gazing at a scene that is nearly as beautiful as Jesus submitting to the Father. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Jesus Christ is the one who makes the difference, who makes it work, who in marriage overturns the effects of the curse and can turn a cage fight into that choreographed dance of submission to love. Charles Spurgeon's wife, Susanna, gave highest praise to her husband, Charles. She said, you are the most tender, gracious, and indulgent of husbands. Here, in the words of Charles, is a portrait of the exalted submission of Susanna. She delights in her husband, in his person, his character, his affection. To her, he is not only the chief and foremost of mankind, but in her eyes, he is all in all. Her heart, heart's love belongs to him and to him only. She finds sweetest content and solace in his company, his fellowship, his fondness. At any time, she would gladly lay aside her own pleasure to find it doubled in gratifying him. She is glad to sink her individuality in his. She asks not how can her beloved, uh, she asks not how her behavior may please a stranger or how another judgment may approve her conduct. Let her beloved be content and she is glad. Alistair Begg said, the woman with no loss of dignity takes the position of submission to the headship to her husband, and as she submits to follow, so he submits to lead her, and there is no problem with authority and submission in that kind of context. I want to think through that one one more time. We're talking about mutual submission from chapter 5, verse 21. The woman with no loss of dignity takes the position of submission to the headship of her husband. And as she submits to follow, so he submits to lead her. And there is no problem with authority and submission in that kind of context. It'll make more sense in the weeks to come as we talk about uh, the loving leadership of a husband defied. Ladies, you can be committed to these principles intellectually, and yet practically you could be a disaster in living these principles out. I like what Alistair Begg said from years ago when I heard it. Wives who cart and moan and complain cross-question, denigrate, undermine, cut, harbor resentment in their hearts against their husbands and make them look foolish when they're out for meals and correct them even though they're wrong, including but not limited to times that it doesn't really matter that much. What matters is there's a unity, and you can correct him when you're back home. It was February, not March. You had red trousers on, not blue. You disrespect your husband in front of your kids, and the next time he goes to discipline them, they'll back talk and fight back. The kids saw you doing it, and they learn from you. The same way they need to see your husband loving you, they need to see you respecting your husband. 
For some of us, because we've never been prepared to submit to Jesus, we've never been prepared to submit to anyone else either. The greatest act of power and submission was found at a wooden implement of execution. Jesus showed his power and his authority and also his humble submission. I think there's one final quote there from Azurdia in your notes. We are mindful of our need, mindful of gospel empowerment. We pray for help to once for all put to death notions of family detached from the gospel that reflect the morality of a culture rather than the evangelical message that's provided for us in the pages of your word. Let's pray and then we'll do some question overview. Oh Lord, I know that uh, this is almost more than many can handle in this room. Uh, in so many ways, it's just brutally blistering hot in here. It's uh, the end of a long, hard work day. And there are things that are warring against our worldview or what we think were our rights or our privileges or our own dreams. We've got the whisperings in the back of our head from classes from college and feministic worldview, humanistic worldview, naturalistic worldviews, and they're just at war with uh, the gospel and the created design and just the great picture that marriage is supposed to be. And Lord, I know that in this room, there's just difficulties, there's victories. I praise you for the victories. I praise you for the good things. I know that there are spouses that just want to grow and they want to be useful and help with marriage counseling and ministries. And there's just others that they're barely hanging on by a thread. And while there was a lot for wives here tonight, there was a lot for husbands too. And I pray that you would press these truths deep into our heart. When we first wake up, Lord, we would be pondering them. And before the little conflict and comment is made that might cause a, what was a good afternoon to be a horribly brutal evening, Lord, you would just help us to have before us just the story of the gospel, how we could live it out to one another. Help us, Lord. We're in desperate need. And we do pray for great healing to take place wherever there are wounds and cuts that are so deep no medic, no paramedic could ever heal them or suture them up. But God, as we read much of Ephesians tonight, so much of it is just about all that we did was mess everything up. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, which with he loved us, he came and he redeemed us and he gave us an inheritance incorruptible in the heavens. Let us have that great love toward one another in response to your great love toward us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Lindsay, do you want to come on up for just a little Q&A time? This is like your favorite part of the evening. You have your own microphone and everything. Isn't that sweet? <laughs> okay, so you guys have your questions out? We're just going to kind of go over them a little bit. To... 
sometimes they don't always make sense. And so my home group, a lot of times we'll read through my questions that I write for home group, and I'm like, man, if I wasn't in my own home group, I wouldn't have known what I just was asking right there. So sorry to everybody out there. Jake's like, I'm in your home group, and they still don't make sense. <laughs> um, I just want to encourage you guys during the week to maybe carve out a lunch or a dinner or something like that and just take your wives out to lunch or to dinner and just go over the questions maybe again or for the first time and just in just a good environment of just romancing her uh, just open up just discussion and just talk and just be real and true and vulnerable and um, just be real and just invite thoughts from your wife on what she observes in your behavior in these ways or vice versa the wife to the husband, and I know that that might seem like a dangerous thing, but as you go into it prayerfully with the purpose behind everything that we, the purpose isn't that that you would win, the purpose isn't that you would put them in their place, the purpose is that you guys would walk in all that God's designed for you guys to bring God glory and to be a witness to the world, and when you both have the same motivation and the same end goal, and you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, he's going to make what, you know, like we studied tonight, could be an ultimate cage fight into something that's like, man, we just had like the best discussion and there was like this choreographed dance of submission to love, you know? And so uh, consider doing that. Sometimes wives, you have to be the initiator of that, you know, and it shouldn't be that way, but you know, it's cool. Go ahead and do it if you haven't got the text or the phone call inviting you out. Be like, what do you think, you know? Anyways, how are you doing? Good. You like these times? All right, so before tonight's session, what would you say makes a marriage categorically Christian? All right, so think about that. Before tonight, I mean, now you know the answer, you know. But before, it's like, oh, we have a Christian home, you know. Uh, we kind of have a joke among our friends, like, you know, if they're talking about friends of theirs, and we're like, Oh, are they Christians? And then when we hear, oh, they're strong Christians. And you're like, they're not real Christians, are they? <laughs> like, really strong ones, totally. You know, just a lot of times it's like, eh. Or uh, we had a conversation with someone once and we, we asked, we heard they got married in a church and we just met them. So like, oh, are you a Christian? And, and she said, very much so. I was like, you're not at all, are you? You know, it's just kidding. So, like, when you really have to put it out there. You know, I'm kidding. Um, ooh, you got something to say. Help bail me out here. Yeah, you got the mic in your hand. <laughs> Wanting to talk. All right, so what, what are those things? We kind of gave some examples beforehand, but what, and what would make your marriage Christian? As a husband, what makes you a Christian husband? Or what makes you a Christian wife? Or what makes you guys a Christian family? Um... You know, I know a lot of Christian families that say that this is their church, and I don't ever see them. I know that they're athletic families or musical families or country families or whatever, you know, skiing families. I don't know if they're Christian families except that their Facebook profile says, you know, what makes a family Christian, right? What definition would you have given the word submission. So kind of before tonight, you heard the word submission. I always like when I'm uh, doing weddings and I drop the S word for the first time in it. 
Like I'm like looking around and I see, no offense, but it's usually like a 50 year old or 60 year old woman in the crowd that's like, you know, it's like, cause you were hanging in the sixties, right? During the sexual revolution and the women's lib came out and all of that stuff. And not that it didn't have anything good, but um, it became, it was at war with the gospel and at war with God's design from the very beginning. So, um, so what definition would you have given submission? And this goes for guys like, well, I would have defined it as you basically do what I say when I want, how I want, when I say jump, you say how high this and that and the other, you know, it's like, we got some, we need to set up a private counseling time. If that was your definition, you know, um, but, uh, anything coming to your mind yet on any, either of these questions? Do you remember what you thought of the word submission before we did the first Gospel Family series? What do you think of submission? We had pretty good pre-marriage counseling. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I you don't know? know? <laughs> I don't know what I thought. We're going to have words tonight, I'm telling you. Okay. Um, any thoughts out there? So far, anything? Joy. Awesome, which is a great, which is a true and right definition. Yeah, I mean, that's like the literal, like, Webster's type definition. Leave it to the gal who has a master's in piano playing to know, like, the actual definition of the word submission. So she was saying to be under and to line up under, which is uh, what, like, the actual definition would be. Yeah, so anybody else think of, uh, anyone want to share from number one, before tonight's session, what would you say makes a marriage categorically Christian? Just like, this is what I had in mind for the last 12 years or something. Joy again. Sarah. What was that first part? Occasionally, Occasionally goes to church. Okay, so, yeah, all right. So, yeah, we, we occasionally make it. And, all right, cool. But isn't that like probably most of us? Yeah, I would say. Joy? Something else? Your actions in order and well behaved. Gotcha. So a Christian marriage would have their stuff together. You edited that for church, didn't you? Cowgirl. Yeah. Um, so it would be an ordered marriage and um, well-behaved. Is that what you said? Well-behaved? Well-behaved marriage. And that includes the children. Yeah. So do we know anybody in our community that is ordered and well-behaved and has children that are in order, but they're not believers? Probably, there's probably a few of them, you know, and a lot of them drive by in their SUVs and hit that church about a block that way, if you want to call it a church, the LDS church, very ordered people, polished, things look well behaved and seem to have it together. And so is that what makes it Christian? So, and okay, moving right along. How does the voluntary act of submission. You know what? Please don't correct me in front of my friends. I I'm talked sorry. to you about this that already exactly what he told me once not before. To do. Doesn't it? Did we just read One, through that? Two, that do three, not. 
four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay. Okay. All right. I was trying to help. How about you read it? Can I get an amen, brothers? I mean, is this not all day, every day? Okay. All right. I don't even know what I said. You said act instead of act. Oh, yeah. I read some words today. My eyes are hurting. Okay. How does the voluntary aspect of submission give it such great dignity? Does that make any difference to anybody here? Voluntary versus like... forced, compelling, what would make that better? Why would there be greater dignity for a Christian wife walking in submission that's voluntary yielding versus a forced, a leadership that's top down pressing upon her that must submit versus a mutual submission leadership that's actually lifting that woman up so that she would want to submit to love. Anybody? Lauren's like, I'm out of here. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you should answer the question, Adam. <laughs> Just joking. Yeah. Yeah. It's genuine. Uh, I was thinking of um, how Paul the Apostle calls himself a bondservant. And a bondservant was a slave who had worked kind of to the period of the year of Jubilee when he would be set free. And, and he could go if he wanted to, but if he had wives and kids, um, he wouldn't get to take them with him. He could go. But also if he loved his master, he could make a decision to stay and to um, Tell his master, I, I love this place. I don't want to leave. I want to be here voluntarily. And so he would go to the door of like the ranch headquarters and he would put his ear up against the doorpost and they would hammer an, a wooden awl into his ear. And that was a picture of his voluntary submission to become a servant to this master for the rest of his life. And so Paul, uh, Paul would often call himself a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that meant something that was, I'm a genuine servant. Whatever I can do for my Lord, for my master, I'll do it, you know. And I'm not trying to directly equate a husband as our Lord and master, although uh, Abraham, or Sarah called Abraham, lowercase l, Lord, right? So there's a mutual, or there's a voluntary submission on the part of a Christian to the Lord Jesus as well. It's called being a bondservant. Any other thoughts on how does the voluntary aspect of submission give it such great dignity? Some of this all flows into it, each other, but husbands, how have you used Ephesians 5.22 as a tool or as a weapon to manipulate your wife? Any husbands here ever busted out old Ephesians 5.22? I'll tell you what. Nothing cranks the romance up in a room like just being like, honey, submit. That's all I got to say. Doesn't work that well, does it, guys? It usually actually turns the temperature down. What was a nice camisole is now some sort of shawl. Maybe a parka. It depends on the 
probably stirs up the anger. The sweats are put on. You're like, ah, oh, the sweats are out. It's going to be a rough night. <laughs> Shouldn't have used the Ephesians 5.22. <laughs> the retainer goes in. <laughs> She's shutting her down. Uh, Who are you talking about? <laughs> this is just, I've counseled a lot of people. I've heard a lot of stories. I, I once heard a, once just heard of a, a guy that left Ephesians 5.22 out on the counter, highlighted, and I mean, that was the end. That was, there was, that was rough. And so, does it make sense, though, that the Greek language, how that middle tense, isn't it neat when you learn how to study the Bible, just different languages and the different, you got to learn how to study all the tenses and the parsing of the verbs and the this is and the that's and when you do you realize like that's not for me to use that's for her and her time with the lord or one of these older women who's discipling or maybe the ministry of a preacher did the declaration of the word to let the holy spirit speak to her wives towards your husband verse 21 submit while being filled with the Spirit, verse 18. So, uh, <clears throat> boy, I dampened the mood there, didn't I? We're all laughing, and then it's like, let's talk Greek parsing again. Okay. Verse uh, number five What is your role in moving her to submit now that you know that verse is not for you to use? So, what is your role, husbands? And this will be discussed more in the weeks to come, but we did touch on it just a little bit here. You say something? No, you should say something. Um, What has your pre, this is number six, what has your previous mindset been toward marriage being an ordered equality? Have you thought of your marriage being an ordered equality? Which word do you balk at more in your mind? Ordered or equality? Probably for the husbands, it's one thing, and maybe for the wives, it's another thing. And certainly to the world's view out there, um, there's an issue. Husbands, how do you express your love in a way that would cause her to respond in voluntary yielding? This kind of goes with number five there. Husbands, how do you express your love in a way that would cause her to respond in voluntary yielding? And maybe it's how can you or how could you? And that's something, husbands, you can just kind of pray over and let the Lord be speaking to you. Number eight, what negative definition of submission have you bought into as a husband or as a wife? And so this is from your notes, that the wife never is to give her opinion, or the wife is inferior to the husband, or the wife must submit without limitations. And wives, do you feel any of these negative aspects from your husband? And so just think about your guys' relationship and the way that you guys communicate to one another, the way you work through decisions within the home, the way 
You're able to share your fears and your cares and um, what you're going to be doing with your time and just, uh, you know, I think for the husband, and sometimes it's stuff that we brought in from dad and grandpa, you know, and just, I mean, oh man, it was, it was a show around the Rogers home growing up, and not necessarily from my dad. My dad was a very loving, godly husband. My grandpa, um, yeah, it, it was an episode of, you know, um, all in the family or something going on out there, you know, and, uh, and I, sometimes I hear it in me as I'm talking to Lindsay. In fact, sometimes I even start talking in an Oklahoma accent, you know, from the 1920s when I'm talking to her, and I'm like, the spirit of grandpa is coming out of me right now as I'm talking to you. It's technically not me, it's him. Don't get mad. Okay, um, but as you're, as you're having your conversations, is it, you know, hey, you know what, don't ever give your opinion. You're clearly trying to boss me around and trying to show me how dumb I am and how stupid I am, and you should just, you know, right? Just hypothetical. Um, or, you know what, you've got your role, and you know where it is, and it's inferior to my role, and so go get to it and stop right now. Or... You know, you're supposed to submit, you're supposed to submit, and so we're going to cheat on our taxes. You're supposed to submit, and so we're going to, you know, give every Sunday the Lord's Day off over to this sport or this passion or this pastime. Um, and, uh, and then, guys, this is where you time out on a little date night after you've prayed and you're just like, all right, let me have it. I'm not going to say anything, I just need to hear it. Wives, be honest with your husbands, and are there any of these negative aspects that they need to just hear from, that just sometimes I just feel like, you know, you just think of me as just inferior, and I just need to shut my mouth and get back to, you know, a lot of those uh, domestic duties, and, uh, that, you know, I'm just kind of worthless, you know, and you can speak those things out. Do you have anything to say in any of this? I feel like I'm really offering a lot here. Yeah, you're doing a great job. Okay. What did you say? Said, Let's no, get it on tape. Job. You're doing a great job. I'm doing a great job, everybody. That's pretty great. No, I was that. I think that that's really good. What you had to say about just with eight, like a lot of these can be really hot button issues. If you, so just like taking time to pray together, pray separately before you come, and just come with a heart, um, like desiring um, to grow and desiring to repent. And just being humble with one another um, and even just asking for forgiveness. Maybe you don't even see it right away when a spouse says something that, um, and instead of just like, just guard yourself against um, knee-jerk reactions or um, being defensive and just, it's, it would be a really good conversation to have if, you know, both individuals are humble and willing to yield and submit to one another like we're talking about. But, um, yeah. We were listening to a podcast, Trip and Tyler, back in the day, and they were pretty funny YouTube <laughs> videos that they make if you've never seen Trip and Tyler. But they had, uh, and they're Christian, but there's a lot of stuff that you're like, <laughs> I don't think you're born again or have a value for the word of God. But um, one of them would have a, uh, when this video, 
when this series goes viral and on YouTube and everyone's watching it, I'm going to be paying for that comment. But no, I'm just kidding. Uh, he would say that him and his wife is it once a day. No, I think it's once a week they get once together. Once a week they get one together. Once a week they get together and do this. And how did he put it? Just tell each other what they don't like about well, the other person? Like, or they have like, and I think it's like five minutes or ten minutes, one person <laughs> can tell the other person what they didn't enjoy this week about. The or other something person. like that. Sounds like something that's going to work like, really well, right? That is a terrible idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's like once a week, and the other person can't respond. Yeah, it's just like, okay. You can't respond. So I, I don't know if you've ever watched Seinfeld, but it's like Festivus, <laughs> you know, that holiday that George's dad made up where, you know, before we eat Festivus dinner, we're going to air the grievances with one another, and it just makes for a great holiday dinner. Um, <laughs> I was not advocating that once a week, let's get together, and we get to pick one thing that we just don't like about the other person. And, like, that's probably not what I'm getting I at here. I think it was specifically like what happened in the week. There's one, like, kind of like a rose and thorn thing, but they like only did the thorn yeah. thing. Here's how you were a thorn in no, my No, you know what? Maybe week. they did do a rose and a thorn, but it was... I was like, that's... Yeah, that's not what I'm recommending here tonight. I'm recommending what Lindsay's saying is just be filled with the Spirit and pray about it, but give that person a chance to talk and maybe just don't even respond in the sense of like, boy, I'm hearing stuff that I've never thought of before or I can't believe someone's thought that about me, let alone the one that's like the nearest and dearest to me. I need to like take some time to pray about this and let me circle back with that. I think there's something admirable and respectful about someone just saying... Can I pray about that, you know? Yeah, and I think it's just a really, it, it could be a really good opportunity for growth in your marriage. So. Yeah. Good thing we don't need to do that, huh? No. Okay, so number nine. Husbands, do you focus more on leading than loving? And we'll talk about this in the weeks to come, but the call for us is not to lead as much as it is to love. Do you focus more on leading than loving? What would your wife say? Wives, how does a love relationship with Jesus and being his disciple inform your submission to your husband? So remember, it's that last little verse in verse, or that's that last little phrase in verse 25, as to the Lord, as to the Lord, as your discipleship to the Lord. How does that inform your submission to your husband. So, any thoughts? Any compliments? I, can, I, I didn't I can, say comments. I, can make I a, said compliments. I okay. made a, a comment. Okay, um, compliments. No comments. Okay, <laughs> comments. Um, I think what was revolutionary for me in the submission, like Rory said, we did have really good marriage counselors, but I do think that once this idea was introduced to us, like... Um, that all biblical teaching should be gospel centered and then just taking the idea of submission and just relating it to Christ was huge. Like Jesus was the ultimate example of submission and that empowers me and enables me obviously with the help of the Holy spirit also to voluntarily submit myself to my husband because that is what he did for us. Yeah. Maybe as you're doing the Bible reading plan right now or reading through the word, start looking for this. Start looking for wherever there's um, 
a moral imperative that's telling you to do something moral, look around at what you just read or what's going to be coming after it and look for how that moral imperative doesn't stand on its own. Look at how it um, has as a motivator and as a model and as the propulsion, the work of what Jesus has done for us and the power of the Holy Spirit in us to do this. And it's in Genesis, and you see the lack of it because people tried to do it on their own and they could never live righteously. So Jesus had to come to fulfill it and then empower us to live righteously. And so start looking for that, and you'll see how the um, redemptive indicatives lead to the moral imperatives, okay? All right, guys, that is all for the night. And we got out a little bit earlier tonight. I don't know how that happened. Praise the Lord. God bless you guys. Enjoy some watermelon and cold cuts and delicious pistachios with lemon water.